Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Chris DeVore. Chris is managing partner of Founders Co-op and the former managing director of Techstars Seattle. Between those two roles, Chris has helped over 200 Pacific Northwest startups raise over $1.5 billion investor capital. Chris has entrepreneurial expertise himself, having co-founded both Adjacency, which was acquired by Sapient, and Judy's Book before becoming an investor. Chris is also a husband, a father, and a friend, and an amazing community leader. So welcome, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Okay, so we're doing rapid fire. We're starting with, I know you're a big biker, mountain or road? Mostly road. All right. Uh, That scares me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, what is your favorite pizza topping? So right now, we make pizza a lot. I can go on and on about pizza. Don't get me started. Well, I know. I read this. That's why it's in here. But but sausage with Mama Lil's peppers. Okay. I want to talk more about pizza because that's okay. like probably one of my like... Your listeners may not care about it, but it's, I do. But it's, a, it's a topic, right? Yeah. Okay. So not everybody allows themselves to eat it, but yeah. if you if you don't know Chris, you'll know that he doesn't look like he eats a lot of pizza. So <laughs> maybe it's the biking pizza combo. It, it, could, it could be. It's a magic. I like that combo. Okay. What is your biggest fear? Oh, biggest fear. I mean, as a, as a parent, it's always about your kids, right? Yeah, um, something happening to them. Yeah, you know, I mean, you've heard the line like the the you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. Yeah. So that that runs through my head all the time. Yeah, I get that as a mom completely. Um, who is your favorite musical artist? Oh wow! Of all time. Yeah, of all time. I mean, I would say the who gets the most rotation in my house. It's either like old school Rolling Stones or it's the Beastie Boys. Nice. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Next level. Um, okay, I like it. If you didn't require any sleep, what would you do with that extra time? Mm. That's a tough one. That right? is a tough one. Yeah, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty introverted. Like I don't, I don't, yeah. I being out in the world takes energy, and being, you know, with my family or on my own is is what I do. So it's like, mm-hmm. how would I spend more time with myself? I'm not sure that's a good idea. <laughs> I probably would read more. Honestly, yeah. yeah. Um, well, that leads to my next question: Which business book? do you most often recommend? Oh, business book. Or do you just read for pleasure? Yeah, I don't read a lot of business books. Oh, I that's mean, good. So, well, so here's, here, and this is, a, this is a cliche, at least in my circles, but there's um, a woman uh, economist, Brazilian economist, I think, named, um, her last name is Carlota Perez, who's written about macro cycles of technology, how technology changes um, economies and, and cultures. Mm-hmm. And I think if your investors have to think in really long cycles, that's their job. And so if you're curious about what is the long cycle installation or deployment or disruption phase of technology and, and what are some historical examples, her um, her analysis is really, I think... In, What's uh, the... We don't know the book. I'm going to look it up because uh, my it friend Joel super, would love it. It has a super dry topic. It's like, you know... Macro, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, okay. it's, it's, it's like an economist. And I'm going to look it's, it up. And it's a little dense. Um, I have one friend in mind that I'm going to refer to. But if you're yeah, if you're going to read one book about the the intersection of technology and and culture and business mm-hmm. or, or the economy, read um, read that. Yeah, 
coming from Smarty Pants. I'm like, I don't think I'll be reading that. I'm not that I'm not smart, but I can't. I don't think I could wrap my head around that. Um, Okay. If you could have dinner with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? Oh, geez. I hate that question. It's so tough. Yeah. I mean, so my dad died 12 years ago, and, you know, that's a that's a loss. Yeah, so, of course. Yeah. So if you were to have dinner with him, you feel like you'd have um, unanswered questions that you get to have closure and... I don't even know if it's unanswered questions. Like, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of, like, angst there. It's just mm-hmm. I miss him. Yeah, of so. course. Oh, God. I don't think... I don't think I'm uh, well equipped for that. My parents, luckily, are still alive. Yeah. My mom's yeah. my mom's eighty. She's been great. Oh, that's um, awesome. Yeah, so she's eighty. She comes for pizza every Friday, as does my mother-in-law. What? So yeah, the, the pizza family thing is is we got. Wait, lot okay. Going on so there. I, I want to dive into like childhood stuff and like who you were little. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but how did you get into this pizza thing? You have like a pizza, a yeah. wood burning. Yeah, we yeah, so whatever. we so the, the the I mean everyone loves pizza, right? So that's easy. We had a friend, uh, we have a friend, thankfully, but this is a long time ago now, 15 years ago, she, and she's an amazing mom and cook and everything, but she got breast cancer and it was really, it was like stage four, very, very advanced. And so she, um, we want to do something for her and for him, for her family. And she had young kids at the time. And we said, well, why don't you come on every Friday and we'll just make you guys pizza and you can come hang out. And she agreed, but she said, only if I can do it every other Friday. And so even though she was really sick and like in chemo and everything else, we would trade every Friday. We would go to her house with our very little kids and she would come to ours. And it just became a Friday night thing. That's awesome. And um, they're, I mean, you know, they, they're, they, have, they have a house in Seattle, but he, her husband's a teacher and they live in Vermont. And so we still see them not as often as we like. She's made it through. She made it through. Oh. She's, yeah, she's, she's doing great. That's incredible. And her kids are all now. There's one left at home, but the other two are in college. Like everyone grew up and it all worked out. Yeah. But that was just, it just became. So you make the dough? Yeah. So yeah. cool. And the pizza right out of that oven. Ugh. Yeah. No, it really, it's in, yeah. So we, uh, you know, Prentice Hale, friend, friend in Seattle, architect friend. Does that ring a bell? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, anyway, so he, he did a, a design for us, an, an outdoor space design. He's an architect oh, here in super town. super cool. So the, and the, the pizza oven is sort of like the anchor Thing I want to see pictures. And it's not a big backyard, but it's like, yeah. and it takes up a lot of space. No, like we'll never sell the house. People be like, you did what with your yeah. backyard? Yeah. But for us, because it's every Friday every in the summer, like that's where we are. Oh, I, I kind of am getting inspired to maybe do it. Um, okay. So you are from Seattle originally. Yes. Right? As are I, you. As am I, because right. I know we both went to the same high school. Yes. Or I actually went there for middle school, so to Lakeside. You're a lifer then. Those are my best learning years at Lakeside. My teachers were the best I've ever had. Yeah. By far. Yeah. Um, so then... Tell me about your family. Are you an only child? Do you have siblings? So, uh, youngest of three. Uh, You're the baby. Yeah, I'm the baby. I have three, and the baby always has um, kind of this. You don't seem like a third. You seem like a first. You know, my wife is also a baby, so I think there's there's something there. Um, huh. But, uh, yeah, so my, my brother is three years older than me. My sister is two years older than me. Your parents were like, boom, boom, boom. Yeah, my my siblings are actually like fourteen months apart, the two of them. So, yeah. and then and then my mom actually had a miscarriage, which is which is I would have been right in there if had I or I wouldn't I wouldn't exist fundamentally yeah. if the, if the third one had made it, but he, but that that one didn't, and so I was the I was the recovery yeah. baby after the fact. Okay, and so were you raised to be an achiever? The pedigree alone, I know obviously you can be smart, but you have to be pretty driven to. Yeah, you know it's funny, and I think like. You know, you hear these stories these days about like dragon parents, and I was like, I just I don't remember any of that, mm-hmm. honestly. Like, it my, came from within, you think? Yeah, or I don't, I don't. Who knows? Like, my my dad was so he was born in the depression. My dad's born in thirty two, and so any you know, it's it was they had people who grew up in the, and he grew up in Montana, so it's like or, or like Montana and Eastern Washington, so pretty scrappy 
uh, like scholarship student to college. Like, I think he really felt the, anyone who grew up in the depression in my experience really felt the, the tenuousness of mm-hmm. life. And so I think he, he became a lawyer and was, was, you know, did that. Um, so it's not like he was a, you know, like a tycoon or anything, mm-hmm. but he was very motivated by his work. And I think his work and being a provider mattered a lot to him. So I think it just internalized that. I think children of people born in the depression, often they, they get that sort of same sense of, geez, this is really all on me mm-hmm. and no one's going to do it for me. And I'm, and I've got to figure it out for myself. Yeah. And so I think I, I really attribute it to that. And my mom is amazing, but not like not at all careerist. Like she's very much- Homemaker. Has, she has worked. No, she worked as a real estate agent. And, but she, she um, she's kind of, a, a, I don't know what to, how to describe her. She's very much a free spirit. And not in the sense like crystals and, and like flowy robes. She doesn't care what people think about her all that much. Yeah. Oh, what a great gift. And she mostly just chooses to do what makes sense to her. Yeah. And so I, got, I think I got this great combination from them of being, feeling like driven and responsible in an economic sort of way, but also really not being- not making choices for what other people wanted me to be, yeah. but to be like, you know, hey, if you if you got something you want to go do, you just do it. And, yeah. And fuck well, I can't up. imagine that there would be anything that they would rather have you be doing. Who, I mean, who knows? Well, so did every, you feel that? So everyone in my family's lawyers, right? Oh, my they're brother's all lawyers. a lawyer. My dad's a lawyer. My uncle's a lawyer. My brother-in-law's a lawyer. You would have been bored. So I'm well. I'm bored. They they're really like they they like their work. They like it. It wasn't a fit for me. It wasn't. A did you try it? I I thought I assumed that I was like you know American studies slash literature yeah, undergrad. I American studies. I even took the LSAT. I think I'm. I, I don't like whatever. Like that's where I was going. Yeah. But I started talking. I took my dad's partners, and they were all, like almost to a person, and they were mostly men. I was going to say to a man. They weren't all men, but they were like, oh really? Like and that's I, what you're they, doing. They mostly didn't love their work. Yeah. Well, interestingly, and I don't want to say anything that could upset your sibling <laughs> <laughs> or other lawyer friends of ours, but um, I I have. Don't meet very many happy lawyers as far as not happy people, but happy in their work. Yeah. And a little bit of it is that like, well, I'm on the train or I paid for this or I kind of yeah. I'm going on the partner track. I was Yeah. I will say the ones that I know that are happy mostly have gone in-house. Yes. So that they're representing the needs yeah, of general a business. Counsel, yeah, general counsel. Yeah, that kind of thing. Although my brother-in-law is a litigator for a big firm and he is like a born litigator. He yeah. loves it. I yeah. mean, I think it's stressful, yeah. but it's but it's like his calling. He He's super... Like, he loves to talk talk about his cases. It's not like oh god, and he's like oh let me let me tell you about this one. Mm-hmm. Like, he's really really into it. So it was you know everyone just needs to find their their thing. Their place and what, in the world. what were you into in high school, and what really fueled you back then? Oh, god, I I don't I don't. I was Rolling so, Stones. Were you into music? Well, it's funny. Like you meet kids these days, and they're so in, they're so intentional, right? Like you, you meet kids in high school, and they're like oh I want to be an entrepreneur, and I, I was so useless as a kid, right? Like I had no career focus, no no ambition other than like getting through it. Like I was, I was basically up to no good. Like I was rowing. Were you and that an was athlete? Good. I was rowing. So that, and that okay. was, that was helpful. Uh, cause it gave me some kind of like, oh, I got to show up for practice I every day. I need to see pictures. Were you yoked? No, I'm a, I'm a skinny guy. Like I, my yeah. friends who were rowers were like huge when they were rowing and I then they got like shrunk. Bigger. No, in fact, I had to go to a, a funeral the other day, which is not a great thing, but I put on a suit that I've owned for years. I never dress anymore. Yeah. And I was like, the suit just hangs off me. I'm like, God, I guess I must, I was just differently because I weigh the same. But yeah. I think I'm differently You're lean. shaped now. You look, than I, I mean, used to you be. look like you are just really in great shape. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm, yeah, whatever. But I'm a skinny guy, too, yeah. right? <laughs> if, you're, if you like. Yeah. And so, what of your childhood, what would you say is your um, kind of fondest memory? You know, we, we did a lot of stuff as a family, right? And we had some really good family friends. So most of it was family. Like we had, a, we have, a, my parents bought, this is like in the 70s, 74. So like, sort of like the back to the land moment for anyone who was back, around back then. They bought a place on Lopez that had been, Lopez Island in the San Juans, that had been a commune previously. Mm. And it was a total dump. It was like an 1895 house up on 
like no no foundation, like up on piers, and then they'd be keeping goats in a back bedroom. Like it was it was a to- like nobody in their right mind would have bought this house, but my mom saw something in it, and she wanted to have a place, and so we spent a lot of time up in the islands. And my mom was mostly doing prod, like she was like literally drywalling and painting and whatever, working on her. And That's my, so cool. And my, and my dad, who's again as a lawyer, he I still can see him. If it was summer, summer he'd be outside at a picnic table. If it was winter, he'd be inside with like legal papers spread over and stacks of yellow pads and his little pencil and whatever. And he was he would just work like he was he worked all the time. Mm-hmm. But he was he worked with us like he wasn't away. Yeah. But that's what he was doing. He was working, and my yeah. mom was doing stuff, and we were out in the woods. Yeah. So lots what a of happy cool time in the childhood. woods. Pretty. So my other friends were like, we were free range chickens. Like as a, as a child, that's how I think of well, it. Especially as the third born, very, you were extra free range. Very lightly, and that's another thing. I mean, you have kids, right? It's oh, like yeah. How lightly supervised we were. How little our parents knew. Oh, for sure. Or even cared. Not that they didn't. Not that they no, didn't but love they us. Didn't, they didn't know in a helicopter. They just weren't in our stuff. No. And so we would we would go out the door in the morning and we'd yeah. be out in the woods and we'd come back and eat something and we'd go out again and like. Yeah. And those it, it, it is times. a conflict because, you know, I don't know if you've got that 360 on your kids' phones where you, like, track them. I, I did for a while. In and my I mind, I'm like, up. that's so invasive. Yeah. Like, yeah. who knows what we were doing when we were that age? Like, let's, right? Yeah. And it wasn't all good, It wasn't all, that's my yeah. point, is yeah. it's like, that's kind of part of being a kid. Yeah. Um, but it's confusing because now you have access to everything. Yeah. And the kids have access to everything, so it's scarier for them. And so it's a tendency to want to protect them, like yeah. you said, but... Also, let them kind of spread their wings right. and be these free-range chickens. Yeah. <laughs> like, I so, love that. Yeah, but so some of those memories were just like being on on the loose. You know, yeah. and, and it feels the '70s feel like it was a, it was if you were an adult, kind of a dark time. Mm-hmm. It felt like a super idyllic time. I as have a kid. to say, I loved being a '70s child. Yeah, it was the best. Yeah. So you went on to go to Yale. Was that your top choice school? I mean, Yale's far, far away from Seattle. So the funny story. So I actually didn't. Um, this is going to sound awful. I shouldn't. I shouldn't even say this out loud. I didn't apply anywhere else. I applied early and I got in and I, and I was done. Well, you applied early and you got in. Yeah. So that wasn't saying you put all your eggs in one basket. No, no, no. Because if you I hadn't, like, you had time to apply other yeah, places. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, wow, good job. I just, but it was such a gift to be done in in whatever, like oh, in yeah. December. So my my dad had actually, again, a scholarship student from Lewis and Clark High School in Spokane. My mm. dad had gone to I think to my Yale. dad went to Lewis and Clark. Oh, really? I think. How interesting. What, Spokaloo. What, what year? He's younger than your dad. Okay, yeah. So yeah, so my dad was class of 54. So for, in my head... It was a place. It was a good school because my dad had gone there, and I knew of it. And as a rower, it was a so I was I was nominally a recruit, a rowing recruit. And they and the those. But your dad went to Yale. Yeah. Oh, okay. On a scholarship from Lewis and from Clark Lewis High and School. From Lewis and Clark High School. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's even. I mean, that's that's amazing. He was like the uh, you know country country bumpkin oh, from yeah. from the west, meeting all these uh, New York kids. Yeah. And, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Um, anyway, long long lots of stories there, but. Uh, and my sister had actually also gone to Yale, so she was three years ahead of me. You're obviously born with some pretty strong genes as far as being naturally gifted and smart, but you chose to apply them versus being the kid that's like, I'm a little bored and I'm going to get distracted. Or did you just do really well on your SAT? Like, that's I, a hard school to yeah, get into. No, so, I mean, so the, the the good side is in certain disciplines, I find they come easily to me, and they're mostly around language arts, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like... Writing and reading and constructing arguments are, I find, pretty effortless. I'm not as strong on what what I now call STEM, right? So, like, I had to work harder in math and science and stuff. And so the grinder side of me, because, you know, like, back then you you took AP exams. So, actually, another terrible story. I didn't take any math or science at Yale. 
because I'd taken enough APs to to satisfy all the core requirements. Oh, good job. But again, it's, but that's kind of lame, right? It's like, well, you shouldn't, you should have. But you didn't I, know. Well, I mean, in, in retrospect, it was a miss. I like, like to go to a great school like that and not challenge yourself in that way. Yeah. But I think I, at first it was just easier to get into those schools back then because there weren't as many. It wasn't a global competition the way that it is now. And the stuff that I did well, I did very well without a lot of effort. Right. And so interesting that you didn't take the kind of lawyer route and you took the, I mean, you went and worked in the cellular. How again, did that happen? Did you get recruited out of college? No. And, and that's the funny thing. Again, back to like when I meet kids today, high school or college kids, they they so clearly know what they need to do or what they want to do. My, my kids don't. And I was clueless, right? Yeah. Like I had grown up and, you know, and literally I grew up in a household where education was sort of for its own sake. Right? Yeah. It was like, you should go to the best school you can get into and you should study whatever you want. Yeah. Like no no expectations, no pressure, no attach of academics to the real world. Mm-hmm. It was like a pure liberal arts mindset, which is great and like beautiful in some respects. But when I was a senior in college, I was like, I have no idea. Like, what do yeah. you what do you do? Yeah. And people who were more clued in than I was were like, oh, well, I'm going to do on campus recruiting and I'm going to you know, management consulting, blah, blah, blah. Well, and that I, was more. I was you. I was just like you. And, and I, I was totally hopeless. Right. Yeah. So whatever. I, I think and this is 1990s. So the economy was kind of shit. And I ultimately started just asking, like, friends, people who graduated recently, like, where did where did they go? I knew I wanted to go to San Francisco. I wanted to be back on the West Coast. How did you choose San Francisco? So Seattle. I mean, you grew up in Seattle, right? It's like so nowadays, everyone's like, "Oh my God, Seattle! It's amazing." Microsoft, Amazon. Seattle was really sleepy back then. It was like Boeing and fisheries and forestry. And unless you like, it was not at all clear that I was going to ever come back to Seattle. Uh, and San Francisco was back on the way. I knew I wasn't an Eastern person. That didn't, wasn't my jam. And so the West Coast and California is always sexy, but I wasn't really an LA person either. And so it felt like San Francisco was the most exciting West Coast city that felt like it was a good fit for my mm-hmm. temperament. Yeah. Um, so you I lived in the city. I lived in the city. So anyway, I got a job working for a, the tiny little management consulting company that a guy a couple years ahead of me from, from college that I'd known had gotten a job there too. But it was like six partners. It was, mm. it was tiny. And why they took me, I, I could never explain. And even the firm, it was super weird. They had two big practice areas. Yeah. One was like basically card-based banking. So like how to, how credit cards, debit cards, payments, payment systems, merchant banking, like that whole thing of how how consumer payments were well, done. That was an exciting time for that area. It was. And the other one was utilities, oh. right? So I, I, I worked on both sides. And so I spent many, many months in Salt Lake City working on a reorganization of Utah Power and Lights dispatching operations, which I did not find super scintillating, although I did discover the Red Iguana, which is like the best Mexican restaurant in Salt Lake, hands down. <laughs> and and nice. then the credit card stuff, AT&T was our biggest customer because they were launching a new co- combined credit card calling card called the Universal Card, which sounds dumb now, but at the time, like you remember, you yeah. used to have a card, oh, yeah. a calling card to make oh, long yeah. distance calls. Like that, there's all this stuff that I'm so old that I'm kind of embarrassed I, to tell people about. I wouldn't be embarrassed. I'm yeah. right behind you. But so, anyway, yeah. they were a client and I wound up getting hired to go client side as often happens in consulting to work first yeah. in a strategy job. And then my, so my first product management job was working for AT&T in Jacksonville, Florida, wearing a suit to a suburban office park every day. Ugh. Like it was, as, it was from, for me, it was as grim as it could possibly like be. Like a soul crushing. Yeah. But, but that's what happened. If you don't know what you want to do yeah, with your life. Yeah, that's where you end up. That's where you went. Wind up. It's like, oh, they're going to pay me a bunch of money. And yeah. I guess that sounds kind of interesting. And I don't know what else I'm going to do. But to me, from what I know of you, um, and I don't know you that well, but you don't strike me as somebody where money is your number one driver. 
No, I think that's true. I mean, not that like I think like I some think, people think like, I'll sell my soul to yeah. get that job. I would say a refinement on that is autonomy is my number one driver. Like mm. I don't like to be told what to do. I don't like to have to do anything because somebody else says I should or or they want me to. Mm-hmm. So money to me is a lever to to be able to say I'll do what I think I should do, what I want to do, what I find interesting. And so only so like you know the, there's the there's the there's the, the, margin, the marginal utility curve right which is yeah. my marginal utility curve probably flattens out sooner than some people's because as soon as I have the freedom to be like I'm not doing that yeah the incremental dollar to me doesn't doesn't really speak to me at yeah. all that much yeah um, are you driven by feeling um, well obviously the freedom but what about the security. Yeah, that or are too. you still you know, you know, like, oh no, don't worry, I can still make no, more money. No, no, like my, you know, again, my dad's the the depression thing, like the worry of the, like existential economic anxiety is super real. Yeah, and so like as an as an investor for my own for like family, my family, you know, the money that I've created to take care of my kids and my family, it's not in risky stuff mm-hmm. at all, right? It's like, oh no, 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 that's that's like the safe money. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I don't I don't do anything crazy with that. This the my my job is to invest. For risk, yeah, right? to so double like, down. Yeah, so, like, I, I invest my well, some of my money is in that because it has to be, right? Yeah, I can't, I can't ask others my to do. Yeah, yeah. I can't. So, like, say, hey, you put money in, but I'm not yeah. going to. So, I'm, I, I, I have a now that I'm four funds deep, and we'll get to that. I've got yeah. a lot of my personal money in the funds. Yeah, I want to hear about that. But you did you, um, I guess doing these kind of corporate America jobs, and you went on to do. Um, more entrepreneurial things. Were you always that, like, hey, I've got this entrepreneurial bug? I think I only learned what I needed to do with my life the the hard way. Yeah. Meaning, because I didn't know, I didn't, there was no, there was no animating purpose, right? I wasn't like, I'm going to go be X. So I started doing stuff and I was like, oh, this sucks. I was like, oh, that's no good. And so the the habit, and I, and I changed jobs a lot, or I changed roles a lot, was I kept trying to figure out how do I keep the things that I like about this and get rid of the stuff that I don't? And almost everything up to, you know, my, when I was 30 probably is a combination of trying to get towards something that was appealing to me and trying to jettison some stuff that I didn't want. Yeah. And I kept turning the ratchet on a bunch of, bunch of things. And I ultimately wound up, I think, in a, like, I don't know what else I would do with my life today, but it took me a bunch of not this choices to get to yes that. What was it when you felt like I'm in the flow, I'm in my ninja skills? Yeah. And... So the first time I, so at at t actually, even though the, the conditions sucked, I got to be, I, I started in a job where I was just doing stupid corporate bullshit, but I became a product manager. I, a, a guy asked me to, to build, help him build a product. And so I got to run my own thing, right? Which is like, I got to write the spec. I got to build the team. I got to like everything about it. And even though it was in the context of like, in this corporation and and was it really like the resources came for free because it was like a lot of so when people tell me oh i was an entrepreneur inside a company i'm like no you weren't like that's not really a thing but the sense of authorship and autonomy and control over a, a thing i was like oh i want more of this mm. but i really didn't want florida and i didn't want at t and i didn't want any of those and things. you didn't want the suit <laughs> i didn't want the suit no none of that so that's how I wound up. I came back here to work for um, Macaw. For Macaw, yeah. So yeah. there was then there was a startup within Macaw called Clarecom. So yeah. in the long story, there was there a guy who had been a long time, kind of whatever problem solver for Craig Macaw and Keith Grinstein. If you yeah. ever knew Keith, I, I knew Keith well. Yeah, yeah. Keith, I was thinking, did you work with Keith? Yeah, totally. So so Keith, Keith is how I got there. I I had known Keith from from, from Seattle. Yeah. And so he, Craig, had asked him to create this this thing called Clarecom, 
inside of Macaw. And so Keith was the one who, who gave him the opportunity to come and work for him here in Seattle. And how would you describe that experience and that culture? So that for me was my first real kind of window into what entrepreneurial culture is about. Because Craig and his lieutenants, like it was, I mean, if the history, and it's a little too bad that no one really knows it anymore, but the way the cellular business became a thing in North America was largely because Craig, and there were other, a lot of them Seattle-based entrepreneurs like John Stanton, realized that the the value of a, of a what they call a pop, of a, a subscriber, potential subscriber in an urban area where the, in the FCC auctions of Spectrum for cellular um, licensing was way undervalued. And Craig used, you know, Mike Milken and and Drexel and the junk bond system that come up in the '80s, and he he basically junk financed the acquisition of licenses in all the major metros, a lot of the most important metros in North America, to assemble a global. And then he used that money to actually build out the network. So it was a combination of very '80s like aggressive junk finance, an arbitrage opportunity in terms of spotting an undervalued asset bidding for those assets in a super aggressive, creative way. And then it's like operational. I actually have to build, I have to tip up a service. So I have to, I have to like build towers and license, you know, acquire like, so it was a combination of entrepreneurial insight, financial insight, and then this crazy operational, like chasing after the operations to scale up this service yeah. that was Macaw Cellular, which ultimately at t So at t Wireless today was the, the core of it was Macaw Cellular. And it was just an incredibly exciting, entrepreneurial, lean forward, creative culture. And it, I was like, oh, wow. This, I like, feel like it was also the birthing of so many entrepreneurs around uh, here. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, honestly, I think that that, that idea of the, the synthesis of business insight, financial creativity, and operational, technical operational excellence, like if, if, you're, if your calls don't go through, you're mad and you don't come back, right? So you, actually, you have to actually have to wedge all those things together into one and, and in a hurry, like all this was done in a hurry because it was mm-hmm. like a land grab thing. And that to me sort of set set the cult, set, like it helped me understand what is entrepreneurial business about. Yeah. And, and you I was probably like, oh, loved the energy. Oh my God. I was like, I want more of this. Yes. And then AT&T bought Macaw. Yeah. Like, like, I, bet, I know what that looks like. Yeah. Is that I, why you ultimately that's left? That's why I left. Yeah. 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 And so that's when you, um, tell me about agent. I mean, I know that we don't want to go through your resume, yeah, like right, yeah. blow by blow, but broadly were you, um, I'm always just curious when people are entrepreneurs or, or have that experience operating a company. The chicken and egg part of it. Like, did you get an idea and then say, I'm going to go make this idea come? Or, hey, I want to be an entrepreneur and I need to think of an idea? No. Like, I, how does this come to the, be? I mean, again, I think I'm like, so the the problem with my story is, is like, I don't think anything about my life is replicable or even necessarily like, I think I wouldn't recommend anybody like try to do what I did because it's so personal and it's so organic. And so much of it is just about moving away from things that, but that I didn't But like. to be totally frank, that's like partially why I started the podcast, yeah. because I think that, um, well, specifically when I interviewed people in New York and I was working in a lot with investment banking mm-hmm. and it was like, you know, Harvard, then Goldman, then go back to Wharton, then, you know, go <laughs> right. to McKinsey. Check, it, check, check. Yeah. And these people would be like, I don't know, the, I don't know what I want to be. I'm so confused. And I would be like, well, see that guy over there? He dropped out of high school. You know, there's there's not just a linear one way. Right. And I think people sometimes are looking at resumes and reading kind of the black part versus the white part. Right. And the white part is what's interesting. Yeah, right. That's what the is stories It's like, are. oh, that's the stories. And yeah. that's like, oh, that one night I was drinking a beer with my buddy and suddenly we, we had this, oh, you think that? I think that. Hey. Let's go do something. Right. Yeah. I ran into this guy at the airport. So I actually think it is relevant. Yeah. 
So it's I'll, not so boring. I'll, yes, and I'll just tell you the story. So after AT&T bought Macaw, and I was like, oh, I got to get out of here. And again, I was just following my nose. And you grew up in Seattle. I love to do stuff outdoors. I'd been an athlete. A guy that I'd known who was a lightweight rower at Yale, a couple of years ahead of me, was the CIO, the chief information officer at Patagonia. And, and I was like, Patagonia is a great, like, I would, who wouldn't, who wouldn't want to work for Patagonia? He told me that there was a job coming open to run what are called the technical products. And it doesn't mean software, right? And Patagonia doesn't, right. doesn't do software. Technical it was anything that, that has technical fabrics, right? Yeah. So it's like alpine mountaineering, um, paddling, uh, snow sports, fly fishing, you name it. So there were, there were six product line directors, and they were looking for someone to, to manage those product lines and manage these product line directors. And this is in 1995, so I was 27, 26, 27. Like, there's no way they should have hired me to take Well, also, this job. no retail, I mean, no experience oh, nothing, with clothing, right? yeah, fabrics, yeah, yeah. sourcing. So, to, and to some extent, like, and again, like, the, the, the stuff I learned from working for Yvonne and Melinda Chenard, that I could go on and on. Like, we could spend a whole session just on that. But so, Yvonne is a. He, These are your Patagonia people? He set, so he's the founder. He oh. and his wife, Melinda, are the founder. Oh, founder. I didn't know and that. And they still own Patagonia. It's We love Patagonia. Yeah, but I, I do too. That's why I went to work there. Okay, so go um, on. But anyway, so Yvonne, uh, a bunch of the things about the hiring, and you're, and you're a recruiter, right? A lot of yeah. things about the hiring culture, which you might say are totally bunk, but at, at least at the time, we're, we're like deeply ingrained. So so you, you know the Myers Briggs yeah. framework, which many people feel is completely like not at all. I think it's interesting, it though. Work. Yeah. So Yvonne is an INTJ mm-hmm. um, for Myers-Briggs people out there. I think I'm an ENTJ. And and there was a strong bias in hiring people who have Yvonne's same profile. So a requirement to apply to work at Patagonia was was to take the Myers-Briggs. And and I was – anyway, so I, my – Are you I'm, an INTJ? I'm an INTJ as well. As I got older, I'm maybe more like JP, which, again, we won't get out of the rabbit of that. I, I'm less ju- less quick to judge and more, more comfortable with ambiguity as I get older. But at the time, I was very, like, chop-chop. And so for whatever reason, it – the the HR team at Patagonia felt like they were willing to take a risk on me in this in this role, and I was way over my head, right? Like managing a bunch of people, all of whom were older than me, all of whom had been in this company with a long standing culture. Like no one ever leaves Patagonia. It, I just learned a bunch of stuff the hard way about managing people and about uh, organizations. And what did uh, you learn? I mean, so so the I'll start with the top, which is so like particularly because Yvonne, he's the founder. So Yvonne is a super intuitive founder. And he says things that he means deeply, like it, like growth doesn't matter. We don't care about growth as a business. We want to build great products for our customers. And as long as we do that, ever the rest will take care of himself. And yet he's also a super, and, and like he hates, quote unquote, hates marketing. But if you follow Patagonia, he does a bunch of things that are brilliant marketing, but they're not about like, buy my shit. Yeah, it's about standing for something in terms of both uh, overall mission and in terms of the quality of your products, and being clear on a brand, and being clear on and fulfilling those things. Yeah, I agree. And, and being aligned with what your customers really want from you, and by doing those things, he has built an incredibly, you know, fast. Like it's it's grown, it's profitable, it's an amazing business, and and he has this whole story, which I wrote a blog post once about what he calls Zen Archery, which is. The whole and there and there is a discipline of Zen archery if you want to go down the rabbit hole on that. But the whole idea is you don't focus on putting the arrow in the center of the target. You focus on excellence in each of the steps. So it's how you pick up the bow, how you draw the bow, how you sight the bow. Like everything has, uh, you 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 strive for perfection in all of the component parts of what you're doing, and then the hitting of the target is something that just happens. I love that. So it's a super like. 
it's simple, right? I want to look up this blog it's post. A I love that. Deep way to think about your work as a, as an individual, as a company in your life, which is don't don't get so hung up on am I achieving the goal? And there's a whole other thing. There's a rabbit hole if you want to go down here. I love all the rabbit so holes. So I have a favorite. You have a lot to talk about. I have a favorite blogger named. I don't Ven, have to be anywhere right n- now. Named Venkat Rao, um, and his blog is called Ribbon Farm, and and he pointed me to an author that's I think been influential in his thinking. Who, who wrote a book, uh, and I'm going to blank now on his name. Let me dig for a minute in my in my brain. Ribbon. Ribbon so, so Ribbon Farm is the, ribbonfarm.com is a blog. Venkat Rao. Okay. Uh, we'll and, okay, and I'm going to look this up. And the book is about um, Stephen. I'm, I'm going to screw up the name of the author, but the, the, the title of the book is Finite and Infinite Games. You remembered it. Yeah. Good job. But not the author. I can't. The is author. that what happens? You just go into your filing system? Yeah, right. My, 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 you're, you're, you're a Sherlock person. It's not as good as that. God, uh, his, I'm not his, so good like that. His mind castle is much better than mine. Um, okay. But the, the, finite, the framework of finite and infinite games is a finite game is a game with strictly defined rules and the focus is winning or losing, right? And most people in their life are playing finite games where they think, if I only get to be a partner at Goldman, if I only make a million bucks a year or 10 million bucks a year, or if I only have the house in Washington Park on the waterfront, then my life will be complete. And what they realize every time they get to those next milestones, I'm still the same person. And I still have to get up every morning and figure out what to do with myself and you know, look myself in the eye and be like, what, what am I going to do today? And the point of an infinite game is to keep playing. And the rules keep changing and the board keeps changing. But as long as you realize that the point is not to win, but to play, you completely shift how you think about what, like how you move through the world. I love it. And I think Yvonne had that same idea, which is it wasn't about building a big business and selling it. Mm-hmm. It was about like, I mean, he spends a lot of his time playing outdoors. Like he gets his, he's his living job. His, he's living his dream. Is to go surfing and climbing and hang out with his friends and traveling. And he's just made, made his life continuing to be about the stuff and, you know, helping the environment, whatever it is. So I think I learned... In, without having a framework for it from Yvonne and, and Patagonia, that that business is an infinite game, not a finite game. Yeah. And the point is to be able to keep playing. Yeah. And I do love your example of the bow and arrow because it's almost like in today's world, they've been teaching it in the schools, just like mindfulness, just like kind of you can go through, you can hold on to your steering wheel and just kind of drive through and zone out, or you can feel the right. strength be of your hands and yeah. be in it and yeah. feel that just all of it. Yeah. Feel the wind against your face, and yeah, no, and, and not to get super woo woo about it, but I do think that there is there. It's um, Western culture is very much, and I think you know a lot is just like it's it's consumer capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. Which is people people who need to sell stuff move units by making you believe that if you accomplish X, if you have the Patek Philippe watch you can hand down to your grandson, then all then your life will be complete, and that's just a way to sell more. And so if you can, if, so, you can get, so good. if you can get out of that framework, even even some of the time, because we're all we're all we're all caught you up can in get it. Caught really up in that. Is but there it, anything that you've found that you've gotten caught up in? Is there this is this might be too personal and it's hopefully yeah, yeah. not a rude no, question. Not, yeah. But um do you find that you as an investor ever get caught up in um, pedigree as a measurement? I mean not so much so in my world as an as a venture investor, the thing that like the the visible badge of honor that everybody wants is to be on the what's called the Forbes Midas list, mm-hmm. right? Which is someone who has been recognized by us producing a bunch of return for their investors. And so, you know, I, if you look at that list, you can be like, well, what, a, like, why, what about me? Why am I not in there? What have I not done? And you get caught up in this sort of like, maybe my fund needs to be bigger and maybe I need to invest outside of the Northwest or like, 
So if you can get caught up in that game, which is I want to I want to achieve the thing that the other like people then have then I will have arrived. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Then I'll, then I'll be playing with the big kids. Yeah. And I, I and I admit because I've I've chosen to do work that's very much about a certain stage in geography. So my business will never be a big business, right? It's it defies scale. It's, yeah. it's like a human scale business, mm-hmm. and there's good reasons for that. And I and I feel I like. Those are choices that are. Well, it might be personal. more values based. Like I want to be around my kids well, they're, more. They're, they're, it's, it's a it's a bundle of personal choices, but I have to remind myself when I see the Midas list. Yeah, I get that. That completely. I've made personal. choices. I have choices. the same yeah, thing. Right, I'm yeah. like, oh my gosh, how does that woman get to be in the fortune? Blah 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 blah. Whatever, and I'm like, yeah. well, wait. Yeah. I'm choosing to be. That's right. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I completely understand that. I'm more asking about when you look at um, entrepreneurs, yep. and they maybe went to you know some state college and don't really have a crazy track record, but Mm -hmm. have an incredible idea and are amazing and passionate. If they went to Harvard, Mm -hmm. would you give them your attention a little bit more? See, so I have another framework about you. I'm going to keep keep referencing blog posts that I've written, which are like a thousand years old and no one will ever find on the internet. Well, I will. But there's one that I wrote that struck a real nerve at the time, which is about um, what what's the one thing you can't take away from a founder? Because founders come in all shapes and sizes and all the rest of it. Usually, and this is a, a quick gloss on, on a longer form thought, usually at some point in their life, and sometimes it was around their co- college or, or early career, someone told them they weren't good enough. Yeah. Right? And, 100%. Yeah. And and they have spent the rest of their life basically saying, few to the world. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm not With only a little good bit enough, of a chip. I'm better. Yeah. I mean, that can be a little toxic for them personally and in their relationships and other things. But usually it's not the people who had the golden the golden glow all the mm-hmm. way along, right? Who got who got had life was easy and they were rich and they got in the good schools and they got the great job because they never had to figure out what like they never they never had to back up and look and be like, what do I need to do to make things work? Yeah. Things just kind of worked. Although some of the founders I've read, I mean, even like Warby Parker and like some of these other big company founders. Yeah. I mean, there's exceptions. To yeah, every, there's exceptions they seem to like there's role. a lot of. People coming out of great schools, yeah. but there's also exceptions. I mean, one of the reasons why I think immigrants make great founders, and we, we were talking earlier about Im- immigrant stories, is like those like those people have had to, like, they don't take anything for granted, yeah. right? They're being able to be in the country, their ability to put food on the table or to pay rent. Like, they've had to fight for everything, and they and it's a mindset that just doesn't assume that anyone's going to do anything for them. Mm-hmm. And that as an entrepreneur, because as an entrepreneur, you have to invent everything from whole cloth, right? Like, what is the thing? It's also not as fear-based. It's like, if I if this doesn't work, okay. Yeah, like going back to, <laughs> All right. yeah, going back to zero at some point. Like, I, I've, I can I've been do there, that. I've been there before. I've been lower than yeah, this. not afraid of that. Yeah, I like that. So, so how did yeah. you become an, an investor? Like, how did that whole thing? Yeah, so... Um, so, so I'll hop through. So, so Patagonia, after having been in this in this role building products, so it was 1995 when I went there. I had gotten lit up about the internet when I was working for for Keith for for, for Craig. And it was 1993 to 95 was when I was here, and I was like, oh, the internet is a thing. Like I'm I'm all about that. So you go to Patagonia, which is a really, and the Chenards are anti-tech. Like the brand does not stand for technology at all, and and, and they were really even super suspicious of computers and stuff like that. They must be freaking out now. So, like, Alexa, turn off. Right. <laughs> but but I um, I I was I basically I started agitating, saying, hey, I think we should be selling online. Like I think we should have an online store. And and the guy who told me about the job, who was the CIO, was an ally for me, and that and the CEO, Allison May, at the time was an ally. And so I enlisted them in this sort of effort to 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 convince the Chenards that this is something that they should do, and they were pretty reluctant. And I think so. Finally, 
what I, I what I told them I would do is like, look, I will because I'd, I'd done some organizational changes in what I was doing, and I felt like it was in a stable place. I was like, I'll take a, I'll quit my job, I'll take a one year contract position as your director of e commerce, and I'll build you an online store. And if you don't like it, you can turn it off and you can fire me. You're like, no, no, no harm, no foul. And I think for me, that was a moment when I was finally like, I'm not just going to do my job and agitate for a thing that should stay happen. within a box. Yeah, I'm going to be like, I think you should do this, and if you don't. Like I'm gonna go somewhere else. Yeah, and and so that was a, that was a moment. And then the and then the fun thing that happened there is they they agreed to that, and I got to like I did at AT and T. I got to have my, run my own little thing and write the spec and build the team and do all the stuff. But Patagonia had no ability to build software, right? Like they didn't they didn't building a website. How did that. you know how to build software? Well, I didn't, and that's the thing. <laughs> so I ran a, a process, a vendor selection process, where I I there were a, an emerging number of firms that could that, that said they could do this, right? And you like Scient, Viant, they all had Iant names, right? <laughs> but so I, so I ran a bake off, and I and I you know did a vendor selection process, and I, and the firm that I wound up selecting was not really a firm. It was basically hardly a firm, but it was six people. Who had dropped out of UW Madison? They lived in Madison, Wisconsin, and it was a, it was some graphic designers and some computer scientists, basically. Mm -hmm. How'd you even find them and know what questions? So to ask? they had actually solicited Patagonia to to because they like they love brands, so they were they were sending letters to all of the brands mm -hmm. saying, "Let us build you a website." And so they they were they were in the set because they had raised their hands saying, mm -hmm. "We want to do this." And ultimately, I wound up choosing these because they were the most authentic. So Patagonia is a, a lot about authenticity. And a lot of these other firms were really like they they clearly could build stuff like it was there, there was no question but about no attachment to the... but they they were they loved like they were all about the brand they they came chasing us they wanted to build a thing for Patagonia and their authenticity and kind of passion as founders was was the reason why fundamentally so I had decided I needed to get out of Patagonia and, and go up to Silicon Valley which is where the internet was happening I applied to Stanford Business School the only school I applied to again is if I get in I'll go if I don't get in then I guess I'll just move up there. I got in. I went up right when I started school. These guys who had they had been my, you know, I was their first customer. They built a great store. I liked these liked the guys a lot. They moved from Madison to San Francisco because they were like, the, what we want to do is there. And so I was in school, but I was spending time with these guys, and they were friends. I knew what they were doing. And long story short, I I at first I thought I'm going to start working for them, but also go, keep going to school. And that lasted about a week. And so I dropped out after the first year and joined them as a partner in the business and and helped scale that business. So that was really like the the sequencing of deciding to help Patagonia build a store mm -hmm. and then going to school and then having these guys come out. And then that, that was sort of my trajectory, which is not a usual, like, I'm going to be a founder. I'm a founder CEO. Yeah, no, like, it happened no, because you it was like passion. Or, and I, mean, I have no identity around founder CEO. Like, it's not it's not even how I think of myself. Like I'm So, but do you have an identity around dropping out of Stanford Business School? Mm -hmm. That's a that takes a lot of. You know, it's funny. Courage. It seems, it seems so obvious at the time. Did your parents have a a position on it? No, I mean, I'd have been out of school for seven years. But like were I, you paying for? I mean, you were paying yeah, for it. You were just it. doing yeah, your my, thing. My money, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think it was. It was nineteen ninety seven, right? Mm -hmm. So ninety seven, ninety eight. If you were in San Francisco in nineteen ninety seven, I was. Yeah. This, it was, I was recruiting in San Francisco in 97. Yeah, it didn't seem that crazy a thing to do. So you joined these guys. And it was a bootstrap, by the way. It was not a venture-backed business. So it was totally hand-to-mouth. Like, and what was your role when you say help them scale? So, so biz dev? So ultimately, ultimately, it was it was like, so I was the oldest guy in the business. Uh, I think that's true. There was one other guy who might have been uh, similar in age. And I, I started in a, in a biz dev role. Mm -hmm. So it was ultimately, it was, because I, and I had been at Patagonia, right? So I, 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 I my authenticity was I was the person who'd helped Patagonia build the first online store. 
So I became a point person along with the CEO, Andrew, who's amazing, like my super fun, wild founder who I love to work with today. Um, and, and we were like the dynamic duo where he, where he was like the, he was the founder CEO, wild eyed, creative. And I was the, I was like the gray haired, like, trust me, I've done this before. We know what we're doing. This is good. It's going to be okay. And we were chasing, we were chasing brands. So like first version of Nordstrom.com, that's a Nordstrom store, worked on the Apple store, worked on, oh, you know, like crazy good brands, steel case furniture, Land that's Rover, amazing. Tag Heuer, Specialized Bike. Like they were wow. all our customers. And you helped get those. Yeah. And what was your approach when you did it? How did you go about finding I mean, who what, to what I, to? What I remember is we were doing a lot. This is, this is before a lot of things. We were yeah. flying places and going, we were like up, door late, door. up late at Kinko's writing proposals that were bound. And again, Andrew was a graphic designer, so like really beautiful graphic design. Like, so it looked really good. Mm-hmm. And we were just like dialing, dialing for dollars, trying to get mm-hmm. intros. How is that as a, and part of my starting the podcast also for me is somebody could be listening and be like, that sounds really scary, especially because you're describing yourself as an introvert, right. which to me, I know some people mistake that for just being shy versus right. where you get your energy. Right. But typically introverts are not as outgoing. Yeah. So I, I would Was say- Was that a stretch for you to like uh, dial for dollars? In the sense for me, like what I don't like is like trade shows and conferences- yeah. death to me, yeah. right? Where you have like, to be like on. A room of a thousand people and I don't know any of them. Yeah. I'm like, what am I doing here? Yeah. But in a room with like a, like like we're having now, like I love conversation. Conversation is super energizing. You're good at like it. Like making a real connection with yeah. people. And if you believe in something, which I, I believed in the internet, I believed in brands, I believed in e-commerce, it's not hard if you find the right person to be like, look, this this is like the future is coming. You have a great brand. You have to be online. Yeah. We can help you do it in a way that's totally respectful of your brand and your operations. Like, this right. is what we do. This is what we like. We're that's made for awesome. This. And so this, you brought in some incredible brands. So then did the company get acquired? Yeah. So we um, we were a bootstrap and there were all these companies that were either roll-ups or had gone public. Then we were all chasing the same customers. And it sort of became clear that either we need to raise money or we need to sell. Like it was, the, it was, you know, and it was the... Like I, I hate. To, I don't think that I was so clever to like see the end coming, but but you could feel that like the world the world was getting a little bit changing. crazy. It was yeah. changing in a way that felt kind of spooky. Yeah. So we hired Robertson Stevens. It no longer exists. It was an investment bank I, in San they Francisco. They were my client in San yeah. Francisco. Okay. Robbie yeah. Stevens. Yep. And they uh, they ran a process on our behalf, and we had a bunch of interesting folks in the pipeline. And the and the winner at the time was Sapient, which is still a publicly traded company. They had started as like an old school client server back office, mm-hmm. you know, IT shop. And they wanted to, like, from from their standpoint, they wanted to become much more brand forward and much more design forward. Yeah. And so they acquired one other shop in San Francisco called Studio Archetype and us. And we were the, we were the two kind of anchor acquisitions for them to to change the perception of their brand. And, and so so after the acquisition, I became the, the head of the e-commerce practice or the e-business practice for them, which was, you know, I had like... It was again it was stupid stuff like 150 e business consultants rolling up to me, and in theory we were going to build up uh, this kind of consulting services practice, a full featured like business strategy, uh, brand strategy, software design, software system integration business mm-hmm. for brands for big global brands that w- that wanted to do digital business or e business as it was called back then. Your timing was just like perfect. I don't know if you know this but um we I grew up in the retail business and then um that company whole long story we'll talk about over a beer or pizza. Yeah. Um but then my brother and my dad started an e-commerce company. Yeah. 
um, but it was in 97. Mm -hmm. It was a little early. Yeah. People weren't quite ready to put their credit cards online yet. But it it was just like they were really, really, really onto something. Just literally like a couple years too early. Yeah. No, and we and we sold in 99 and it was like, you know, and I having and it was a stomach churning. All acquisitions are stomach churning and I didn't know that at the time. At the time I was like, I'm like will it close, will it not? Cuz it was it was life life-changing outcome yeah. for all of us. Uh and so I've uh, I also have total empathy for the like what that's like for founders cuz it yeah. was it was like the I was never I've never been more stressed in my life than will this transaction close or will it not. Yeah. Uh well, the life changing in in the positive way, right? Yeah, no, you get in, some in some a, an a, exit, yeah, right, and that's great. But if it hadn't happened, you're still young and smart and yeah. But I think back hungry. to back to our conversation a little bit earlier, which is like once you once you're above a certain baseline of 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 risk tolerance, like as long as you know that that you can you know like have a roof over your head and food on the table and like pay your bills, all of a sudden for me that was that was and again like my. My desire to do that ten more times not not that high, really, but for me, that was the moment when I went from from like I don't know how I'm going to do that to I don't have to think about that anymore. Yeah, now I get to and now just I have can the really I can really just open up. Like, what do I want? Yeah, and so what was that process like for you? Did you take some time to figure it out? So interesting. So I spent two years working for Sapient because there was a there was a there was a tail on the transaction. Yeah, living in San Francisco and traveling a ton. Like I was you know one k on United three years in a row. Oh wow! Which is did not you had you met your wife at this point? So we had met in business school. Oh, so she, see, there's a purpose for Stanford. She stayed in school and I dropped out, but we stayed together. And then we moved in together in the city while I was doing this after school. Mm. And at one point, and so, you know, we, we were, we were looking at each other and we were both working, she was working for BCG. So she was traveling a ton as well. We were living in the city and San Francisco, even then you could sort of feel the, the gears turning, like the, the, the trend away from being this kind of cool boho West Coast city to being all about like money and money and bling. Mm Mm-hmm. It was visible in 2001 or 2000. And I, I, yeah, I left in 99. Yeah. And, and I looked at her and I was like, because I'd bought a house up here when I was working for, for Keith. Oh, that was smart. And I kept it as a rental. When I, and, I, and we were in, in you know, BCG. She was kind of getting ground down by that. And I was like, you know, I own a house in Seattle. We could just move up there. Where is she from? From, I mean, she, her dad was a naval officer and then an academic. So she's from everywhere. She'll tell you she's from Laramie, Wyoming, because that's where she went to high school. But she grew up all over. Yeah. But she was. She went to undergrad in the Bay Area and grad school, and her sister lives down there. So it was, you know, there were the reasons to stay. But she agreed to move up here. We weren't married or engaged or anything. But that it was a moment when you say like realizing that I could do anything and be anywhere. Yeah. I was like, where do I want to be? Where do I want my life to be? Right. And we chose here. Good choice. Yeah. Seattle, which which relates. Yeah. When a lot of what I do now relates to that, which is like. Once you've made a choice of a place, and mm-hmm. that's and that's a choice you're not going to go back on, then you start to figure out how to how to make the place a pivot point for your for your life for your work. Yeah, well, and how to have an imp- impact on the community because you and I have both lived. We both grew up here and then yeah. left San Francisco, New York, cities that are robust and thriving, and we love this city. Yeah. and so to be able to give back to it and help it in some way, you've been incredible in that way. So your process of working at Sapient for a couple of years. Moving back here, what was your um, kind of big idea? Honestly, I had no idea. I was completely <laughs> clueless. Yeah. So we moved back. We got married. We remodeled our house. I actually worked on the job site. So like I was, and, I, and I've always been interested in architecture and urban design. And I was like, maybe I'll go to architecture school. Like literally. Like, you I'm literally like, were that. Oh, yeah. So you knew that there was either I'm going to start something or were yeah. you investing at all back then? 
No, I mean not not in anything interesting. It was mm-hmm. it was two thousand, so the, the the bottom had just fallen out mm. of after two thousand everything after two thousand one. So we were mostly just like hunkered down, living our life. We traveled. We were in. We spent a lot of time, uh, you know, screwing around. And, yeah. And Do my, you still have the Lopez family house? Yeah. yeah. Oh, how cool! Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. No, that's still still a thing, and it's still a family. So I, I my mom is still alive. So she's up there going to mountain. That's and amazing. Yeah. So anyway, that that was when you know coming up here, but I didn't know it was a choice about place and about and about not working for other people, but but how to how to actuate that I didn't have any idea, mm-hmm. and it was only through kind of an accident of meeting somebody else who'd also sold a company about the same time in another city, in this case Boston, moved to Seattle for personal family reasons, and didn't know like what to do next, and and I got introduced through a, through a mutual friend. From high school, mm-hmm. and we started just hanging out because we were in a like similarly sort of, you know, what are we going to do in, in limbo? Yeah, and wound up deciding to start something together. That's great. And what yeah. was the idea? So we tried a bunch of ideas, like like, and it was very much a for me. It was not. It was a different process for me because it was it was not uh, as organic as anything I'd done before. It was like a deliberate like we're going to start a company. What like a, we do? yeah, that's what I was curious about. So it was whiteboarding of ideas. <laughs> yeah, and 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 in fact, I actually am, am suspicious of that process as a result, which is trying to come up with an idea out of whole cloth versus being, and as an investor, I have the same bias now. I would always rather back a founder who felt a pain point, felt a pain point yeah. experienced a problem through through their work. Yeah. And it's like, it just shouldn't be this way versus like trying to be like, oh, maybe there's a problem over here. Let's go over there. Those those have started to feel to me like sort of synthetic. and It feels too forced. And weak and forced. Yeah. Try hard. But that's what we did. And the idea that we came up with was around social referrals for local services, right? Which is everyone makes choices for local services based on their friends. They ask their friends, how do you do it? That's interesting because I was supposed to have lunch today with Liz Pierce so, so for I've, Fresh Chalk. I have talked to Liz about Fresh Chalk and shared my experience such as it was. It was a long time ago now. Um, and I have lots of opinions about that 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 business or that opportunity, rightly or wrongly. But that was that was the idea. This is before smartphones, so it was, it was an internet idea, but not a mobile idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we ran at that idea for three years, and we raised money from venture capitalists here in Seattle and in the Bay Area, and ultimately for reasons that were at least half our own, just like mistakes, leadership mistakes, and 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 bad choices, but also some structural problems with that opportunity space. Ultimately, decided that we couldn't make it work, and so we sold the assets. We returned. I think forty cents on the dollar to our investors. Well, and, at least you returned something and, and and moved on. Yeah, and yeah. moved on. And so, at what point did you decide had like to get involved with being an so, investor? And that was the useful organic part, which is having been a founder and having been in the Bay Area and like in like the crazy crazy times. And then for the my my um, partner at the time had been in Boston, which is similar but different. Everything about being a founder in Seattle was harder. Like raising money was harder, recruiting was harder, getting media attention was harder. Like ma- mattering in, a, in a more than just it a felt regional like sense. redheaded stepchild. Um, yeah, like yeah. every like this is Seattle is still such a company town. Like yeah. everybody wants to work for a big company and and have a safe paycheck. And founders up here are weirdos, right? Whereas in the Bay Area, everybody wants to be a founder and you work for a big company just as long as you have to to get your vesting or build yeah, up your bank account. Yeah, until you can become a founder. Yeah, and so that idea is like, why is it so hard to be a founder? Why is being a founder so weird up here? That was the the why, which was which is based again back to like where what are strong business ideas versus weak business ideas. The strong idea was this is harder than it should be. This is a market that has tons of money and tons of talent. We should figure out how to make it easier to be a high performing founder in Seattle. 
which is why we started the fund called Founders Co-op. Like it was about how do you, if there aren't that many founders, how do you federate the ones that exist and get them to collaborate in the creation of more good companies in mm -hmm. Seattle? So tell me what the idea is exactly. What is Founders Co-op? So Founders Co-op, I mean, in the simplest sense, it's a venture capital fund. Okay. It just, it's sort of shrunk down to smaller than, than certainly smaller than Valley size. And I can explain the why of that. But it's very geographically focused. Mm -hmm. And so the the belief is that, and and i'm gonna I'm gonna bore the shit out of people with this, but I'll pause for a minute. So I don't think so. So backing up, venture capital as an asset class is something that that money managers choose. It's not a core holding for anybody, right? Like your core holdings are stocks and bonds and real estate. Venture capital is a way to get surprisingly large returns, potentially, that are uncorrelated with traditional assets. Um, and so you, if you want to goose the returns on a, on a well-constructed portfolio, you put some amount of your money in venture because you can get these extraordinary outlier returns. You can only lose as much money as you put in. So it's, un, it's unlevered in the sense that if I give you a dollar, all I can lose is a dollar, but I can make you $100 or $1,000. So it's a really interesting way to, to put money to work in, in the context of a portfolio. Most money managers deploy, it's like Wall Street is Wall Street, right? Investment banks are there. Sand Hill Road is the Wall Street of, of innovation finance. So if you're a money manager and you want to give money to uh, that asset class, you mostly look for managers in San Francisco. There's not that much venture that sits outside of San Francisco. So if, if you want to build a business in some place other than San Francisco, at some point you might be able to raise your Series A or Series B down there. But how do you get started? Mm -hmm. Like what's the first check that you get to right. be able to take a risk as an entrepreneur? And in small cities, often that money comes from what they call angel investors. And often angel investors are more risk averse or less aware of what does it take to build a business to be really big? What they want is they like the idea of taking some risk, but they kind of rather you didn't take a lot of risk. And they maybe hope if someone comes along and offers to buy you in a couple of years, you take, a, take an offer and give them their money back. So in many cases, angel investing, as well-intentioned as it, as it often is, dis disqualifies people from getting access to the venture industry. I'm going, again, way down no, the No, I like yeah. this. So, I'm personally super intrigued. So what small markets lack often is what I would call risk on first check investing. And that's what Seattle lacked at the time and I think in many ways still lacks, which is given all of the technology capacity in a city like ours and all the wealth in a city like ours, there's almost no first check risk on capacity to help founders start a business here that will that ultimately be able to raise its Series A in the Valley. And I, and I actually did an analysis recently that, I, that GeekWire picked up and published, which is Seattle is a top five market in North America for venture returns, meaning it's produced tens of billions of dollars of return over the last 10 years. And it is the most underfunded market, meaning there are fewer managers of first check capital in Seattle relative to its performance than any other market in North America. Yeah. Why do you think that is? So partly it's the company town problem, right? Which is there, there isn't most, even though there's a lot of talent here, most of it is locked up in full-time employment at companies that have produced a ton of wealth. Like if you worked at Amazon or Microsoft the last 20 years, if you stuck around for a while, you probably did really, really well. So the talent is sticky in these huge wealth creation engines. Whereas in other markets that have more sort of liquidity, talent, 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 you know, they, they work for a while and they go start something and they learn something and they come back and they go start something. So I think the assumption of investors has been Seattle's not a place where great startups come from, right? Mm. That there's lots of talent, but it's all locked up in Amazon and Microsoft. But if you look at the returns, right? Yeah. If you look it at says it's otherwise. like, wait a minute, that's yeah. not, that's not true. Yeah. 
So I think Amazon and Microsoft often overshadow the narrative of what's happening up here. Yeah. Which from, is where, from where I sit, because I work with so many startups. Yeah. I'm like, and they're coming out of like, oh, this ex-Amazon. I mean, you just saw Convoy got 400 whatever yeah. ex-Amazon. Yeah. No, and, what's, um, and that's what's been, what's been fun is you're starting to have these stories not only of first derivative startups or like Amazon and Microsoft founders, but you're starting to have people who worked at Convoy oh, for start sure. companies or oh, worked yeah. at Outreach or worked at Auth0. 100%. So there have been, I think, 10 unicorn companies founded yeah. in Seattle in the last 10 years. So it's start like people have started to And from what I see, you're attached to pretty much everything. First, I'm wondering, so for all of that wealth creation that's coming out of Amazon or Microsoft, there are a lot of people who might want to get in on this game. How do they get access to the deals? As investors. As investors. Like I I, um, keep getting asked to, oh, these women funds or, hey, Mm -hmm. how do we fund more women? Or, hey, why don't you put, you know, a lot of people, let's put together a fund. And I'm like... I don't know the first thing about, I don't have time for that. I don't know the first thing, but I could probably get 20 investors for someone else. Yeah. Is that something that is attractive or is that something that you think would help um, kind of seed more startups here? Yeah, it would. I think the the reality is when people step back, a lot of people say on the surface, that sounds like a good idea. I should learn more about that. But when you look at how a venture fund product, a financial product, right, actually works, most people get spooked by the fact that it's super illiquid, super uncertain. So by illiquid, it means yeah, you a, can't a, access a it. fund has a, has a 10 or 12-year life. Mm-hmm. And there's no promise that you're going to get your money back ever, for starters. Or if you do get your money back or make a return, it's going to be pretty late in that cycle. Right. And a lot of people just prefer to know that they can always get their money. A bird like, in the hand. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, can, I can always pull it out. And the other thing is, particularly as interest rates have gone to zero, fundamentally, people are really hungry for yield. Meaning, meaning, like I want to know I'm going to get a quarterly payment or a or a monthly payment. So real estate is great for investors like that. It's like, oh, I can I can buy a part of an apartment building and I'm going to get a check every month for the rest of my life, and the apartment building will grow in value. Great, and I but I'm giving you this money as an as a manager, and there's no promise I'll ever get it back, and you're not going to write me any checks. Like, hmm, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Mm. Right, the, like the risk in those. So the the opportunity is for people who have. A, a large, well-constructed portfolio of other assets, just like I, I, I was saying earlier. And they're like, I have my bonds and I have my stocks and I have my real estate, but I have some excess capital and I want to find a place that drives return and I want it to be extraordinary return and I'm willing to put up with the illiquidity if the returns are good enough. But usually most people don't get, like, that's the last thing you add to a portfolio, not the first thing. Yeah. The reality is most people venture, they probably shouldn't be investing in venture, Right. It's not the fit for everyone. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. No, I, I completely get that. I, I'm very attracted I'm to I'm a it. terrible salesman, by the way, which is like, I, no, I usually I don't think give you're people- No, ter- I think it's actually smart because you're saying, and especially if you're talking to a friend, like, hey, here's the deal. Yeah, no. Like, <laughs> you're not trying to say, hey, give me your money. I appreciate that. It's a 10-year minimum relationship, right? Yeah. And so you want people who want it for what it is. And you want the people who are just going to say- Here's the money, and now I'm going to go away. Because yeah. that's a nightmare if you get calls like, what's going on with blah, blah? Yeah, well, we try to, like, we I actually try to don't communi- really want to deal with that. We try to communicate with people so there's, there's no surprises. Yeah. Right? That's so how big thing. is the fund? So the, our, we're on, I'm investing out of fund four. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last one was, the, this one is $25 million, mm-hmm. and it's been a progression. So the first fund was $2.5 million, uh, and it was, there were 20 Beyond me and my original partner, there were there were eighteen other investors, mm-hmm. and so now in our last fund, we have almost a hundred investors to get to twenty five million, and it's a combination of individuals who've worked and been successful in the tech industry. There's some larger family offices of people who've who've been founders or made a lot of money in the tech industry, and there's some family foundations. 
who often have an interest in the region and want to see the region thrive, mm-hmm. including the, the state of Oregon, the Oregon Growth Board, which is it's a little unusual for them to invest in a Washington-based fund. But we've been very active investors in the Portland ecosystem in particular. And so they they want to see more more great companies built that employ skilled people in the region. So a lot of the why behind people when they invest with us is they want to make money, but they also want to see that particular geography thrive. Yeah. And that's and that attaches to our mission, which is we want to invest in great founders in the Northwest. I love it. And so are you just doing seed round? Yeah. I mean, so the the nomenclature around venture has gotten murky. I know. Used, used I to know. be, yeah, the first... The like, first what is a seed round versus an A? Yeah. And a yeah. Well, the, the reason why Series A is called Series A is it used to be the first institutional venture round. Because back in the old days... To, to build software, you had to spend a ton of money, right? You had to license software. You had to buy a bunch of hardware. You had to hire really big teams. So you needed $5 bucks to just test an idea. Now so it's just easy peasy. So all those things have gotten cheaper, and the teams have gotten smaller. Tooling's gotten cheaper or it's, or it's free. So the, the first there's a new layer of the capital markets for innovation. And because their seed a, series, series A was already taken, they had to come up with a new name. So seed stage or Series Seed or Pre-Seed or whatever you want to call it, all those are kind of mushy topics that just mean the stuff that you do before Series A. Yeah. Series A is now really growth financing, which is, okay, you've proven that there's a thing and you've got a customer product. Now we're going to help you scale up sales and marketing. Yeah. So it used to be that Series A firms were the first stop for entrepreneurs. And now, whatever you want to call them, seed, seed. firms are the first stop. So right. our, our goal is to be the first check into or, or you know, in the first institutional check. First least. institutional. So they may come and they got seated by friends and family yeah. and now they're ready to. Yeah. Let's say they worked at Amazon or Microsoft and, they, yeah. and, their, and their, you know, boss and former colleagues have given them a couple hundred K just to get going because they yeah. like them and trust them. Now it's like, okay, we need a million bucks or two million bucks or three million bucks mm-hmm. to, to really build a team and go at this. That's where we're more likely to, to get involved. Yeah. And how intentional have you been around, um, funding or seeding women mm-hmm. or um, underrepresented groups? Yeah. I think, so the cadence of investing in the fund, we do like six to eight first checks a year, which is not that many. And mm-hmm. we sort of, you, you see them when you see them. So we have a s- strong history of backing women. I mean, some that you probably know, like Amy Nelson at The Riveter is a, is a portfolio CEO of ours, or you fund Zhang at Loftium's a CEO of ours. I, I love shouldn't her. say of ours, yeah. 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 Um, Hannah Freeman at Ganaz is a CEO in the portfolio. So we have we have quite a few amazing women founders in the portfolio. Um, but one of the other tools that I had in my toolkit for the last 10 years, which I recently passed the torch on, was the Techstars program. Mm-hmm. Which... I was going to ask you about that and how those two intersected. So the, the quick backstory is when we started the fund in 2008, the, the hypothesis was Seattle just needs more risk on first check money. And I think what we realized was there was also a problem of just discovery in the market, which is offering money was was necessary but not sufficient. And what you needed was, because there were pockets of excellence, there were great founders, there were mentors, there were other angel investors, but they didn't all know each other. And so it wasn't there wasn't a liquid market of it for information or support for founders. And one of our investors in the company that we did that didn't work was a guy named Brad Feld. And Brad was at the time was at- Foundry? It, yeah. So he was at the, when he invested in us, he was at what's called Mobius, which is a part of SoftBank. He left and moved to Boulder and started a, a firm there called Foundry. And one of the things he did at Foundry was he was the seed seed investor in something called Techstars. Techstars was an accelerator program started by a guy named David Cohen with that same impulse of, hey, Boulder's a great town, but there's not enough action at the early stage. What if we created a thing where we people apply, we, we pick 10 companies at a time, they come sit in our office, and we kind of bombard them with support. 
maybe that could stimulate the creation of more good companies. And it would give a way for everyone in the community who cares to sort of know where to plug in. It's like, oh yeah, Techstars, like there's an event coming up this Thursday and I can and I can mentor 10 companies at a time. Like, great, great use of my time. So as soon as we saw that in, in Boulder, we were like, guys, whenever you want to do something like that in Seattle, we'd love to run it for you. We're, we're going to keep running the fun, but we'd love to do Techstars too. So starting in 2010, they, they agreed in 2009, the first program is 2010. We started running Techstars Seattle as a companion product to the fund, which is the fund is the fund, but Techstars was a way for everyone in the community who cared about early stage to get involved in a way that made sense to them, mm-hmm. which is if so you weren't at, necessarily funding. So we 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 were, but so, so an accelerator is usually not about the money. So so first, the Techstar Seattle was a is was a fund. It's no longer a fund, which is which is whatever, just a change. But the but the investors in Techstar Seattle were Founders Co-op, Madrona, Vulcan, Trilogy Equity Partners, and Maveron were the anchor investors. Got so it. all the investors who invest in the later stage. And but wanted to see more high quality deals, it was a sort of like a co-op in the sense that they're like, let's all chip in a certain amount of money, yeah. small dollars. I love it. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Okay. And, and if you have a team that you think is promising but is a little raw for you as a firm, refer the team to TechStars, and we can we can spend more time with them, all of us, and help them get connected with the right mentors or customers, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And maybe by the end of the program, they will have figured enough stuff out that it becomes investable for all of us. And does um, TechStars take a piece? Yeah. So, of so the, the math, and it's evolved a little bit over time, but the, the simple math is a company that comes into TechStars gets 120k, or they. I mean, there's a, there's there's a nuance there, which is an important nuance. But but for the sake of the conversation, TechStars becomes a six percent common owner of the company, and common meaning not preferred. And, and mm. the, so it's it's the same class of shares that the founders own. And the idea is alignment with the founders, which is it's a relatively small stake, and we're not we're not trying to tell you what to do. We don't we don't have a bunch of of you know governance hooks mm-hmm. over it, but in exchange for access to the network and the mentorship, we want to be owners alongside the founders. Got it. And how does an accelerator differ from labs like Madrona Venture Labs or Pioneer Square Labs? So yeah, and I and I want to again like I I have opinions here. I want to just say first that the people who run those programs are friends and they do great work, and yeah. I think they're really critical to the city. Back to our conversation about like where do good ideas come from? In most cases, the labs or studios, they want to come up with the ideas themselves. Mm. And they believe that they should get a lot of economic value for being the source of the ideas. And then they get other people to work on ideas that they've sourced. Got it. And in my experience as an entrepreneur, as an investor, that's not where either the best ideas come from or the most driven and passionate founders come from. So to me, a founder is someone who um, comes with the idea, is attached to the idea in like a, in a deep, deep way that their their identity is wrapped up in wanting to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. It's not like working on somebody else's problem and calling yourself a founder. It's right. like, no, 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 I've got, there's, there's a hole in the world that needs filling and I'm going to fill it. Yeah. So to me, a studio or a lab is a, is a little bit of trying to manufacture startups by decoupling what does it mean to be a founder and where do the ideas come right. from. Versus a founder entrepreneur coming and needing the support of maybe some stuff where there's a gap. Yeah, right. And, Got it. And and that's, again, like there's lots of opinions on, yeah. on different ends of the street. Yeah, and no, I just was yeah. confused by the the titles are like Accelerator, Labs. Yeah. No, I get it though. I do get it. Yeah, so so to, to me, Accelerator is truly about accelerating a team in a, that already exists mm-hmm. in the direction they want to go. And you've had some incredible, which ones are you most proud of coming out of Techstars? I mean, the you introduced me to Matt from Remitly. I think I met with him when there were like three people. Yeah, and, and they're still a client. Yeah. And I just he's the nicest. 
human ever. And that's, I mean, all these stories, I mean, I love founders in general. That's why I do what I do. Yeah. Matt is a particularly special founder because not only has he built a really big, impressive business, but he is so driven by the mission. Like, so that, so Remitly is his company and they help immigrants become trusted by financial, by financial networks, right? Which is if you're an immigrant in a country and you've moved somewhere, like no, no one, you have no credit history, no employment history, no nothing. Being trusted by the financial systems is really, really hard, but you need access to money and credit to do what you do. And so he started with a remittance product, which is like, hey, I'm, I've come to America to make money to help my family back home. I need a, a low-cost, trustworthy way to send money to my family. And that was, that was and is the animating spirit behind the business. But his mission is not just remittances. It's I want to be a trust proxy for immigrants. I believe in immigrants. Immigrants are going to need other financial services beyond remittances. And I want to help them solve their first problem, which is sending money home. But I also want to become the way that they become trusted by other the rest of the financial services system for other things that they might yeah. need. Yeah. I mean, talk about fueling the economy. Oh, man. And, and just deeply inspiring, right? Oh, incredible. Um, and he's just the most generous, nicest guy. So that's one. Yeah. But there's so many others. So another one that I that I love also just because it's a, a true a real founder story. And it, it's... It, uh, it's evolved a lot, and I think the 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 way the the way the business reads now and where it started are so different, which is which is another lesson for me about like if you begin with the right people, it's not about the idea, it's about the people and and their capacity to work together and to solve problems. Mm-hmm. But the company today is called Outreach, and when I started working with them, I actually there were there were Manny's two. awesome. Well, so what's interesting, Manny Manny was the the check that I wrote was not into a company that Manny was involved in at the beginning. There was a company or a shell called Component Lab. There were two young technologists, one more of a front end, one more of a back end, who had been through Y Combinator and with a failed startup, and they moved back to Seattle. And they were just talented, and I'd gotten to know them, and they were kicking around some ideas. They weren't sure what they wanted to do. And I was like, you guys, I just I think what you're doing is interesting, and I want to be helpful. How about if I just give you some money, and you come sit in my office, and we figure stuff out? And that was Gordon and Wes, so two of the four founders of Outreach. And then we were running a Techstars program, and Manny and Andrew came into the program with another co-founder who was their CTO, who they they had a parting of the ways early in the program. So so Manny and Andrew were entrepreneurs in an accelerator program, but didn't have any any ability to build software. And I had these two really talented engineers who were noodling around some ideas, but they weren't really sure what they wanted to do, and they probably needed some help on the business side. So you side. connected them? So I said, why don't you guys all go out for beers and see if you hit it off? And not only did they head it off, they became like inseparable. I mean, it was one of the most, and four, like, so four co-founders is a lot. They became the strongest, most deeply inter- intertwined, like personally, like the, the trust and the communication and the capacity for risk of that four-person team was like nothing I've ever seen before. That's incredible. I didn't know that story. So, yeah. So, so they were originally yeah. called Group Talent. I remember. That's when I spoke to them. And they were, and they were targeting recruiting firms. Yeah. And they've decided, as you know, that's a that's a hard business. Yeah. But I think what they what they the insight, and again, because they were just gritty and persistent, they were like, you know, recruiting has a lot of of similarities to just selling, right? Like the motion of identifying prospects and reaching out to them and building trust and getting to a place where you can transact with them. It's like, what if we and, and we're having a lot of success building software to just drive our own outreach to recruiters. What if we generalized our solution and made it available to anybody who has yeah. to do this in their life? Yeah. So out doing outreach, like like building. I just didn't understand how it was different from like Salesforce. So so interestingly, Salesforce and the, and, the, and this is again like an investor speak for this. Salesforce is a system of record. It's like a database, right? Mm-hmm. 
and in many cases, systems of record, like you, they're trusted systems, right? It's like I have, to, I have to put in information and get information out, but the task of administering the data is not a joyful task. It's like, okay, I just finished a sales call, and now I have to go log what happened in Salesforce. Yeah, Salesforce is uh, clunky. So, so the users of salespeople, the users of Salesforce don't actually like to use the product. So the question is, could you create a layer of software that makes those people's days joyful, where they, they just do what they do and are good at, and magically they get they pull information out of Salesforce yeah. and what happens goes back in. But at a minimum, that that's so that's user centered software for not what salespeople have to do, but what they do, what they what they like to do. What is their core emotion? Outreaches that layer of software. So it's yeah. often called a system of engagement, which sits on top of a system of record. Got does that, it. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. And I just, I think he's just got such good energy. I, every oh time God. I talk to him, I'm like, I just want to hang. No, and, and another, an immigrant yeah, founder. Yeah, what, what is another one? Who's built a really strong. Oh, like, yeah. Like, and it, you know, and you don't, not everyone thinks of salespeople as like, as like a positive culture, super positive culture, oh, very, yeah. very woman and family friendly culture. Like Manny has done an amazing, Manny and his, and his co-founders. And his team, yeah. And his COO is really cool too. She's in Anna, San Francisco. Anna. Anna. Yeah, yeah. No, Anna's they, fantastic. They, they built an awesome business. And it, yeah. it feels... And again, I hate like the Seattle partisan in me, right? It's like you can build a business that's just as high performing and just as profitable and it raises just as much money up here, but you can do it with a values or back to my Yvonne Chouinard stories, right? It's like if you don't lose sight of your values, you can do all the things and make all the money and get all the headlines that you want, but you also have something at the core that that people can't take away from you. For and I sure. think that's what Matt is doing at Remilly and that's what Manny and his team are doing at Outreach. And I think it's a different way of being a founder. Yeah. And I think Seattle founders have permission and support to to do that kind of work. Yeah. In a way that I think founders in other markets don't always get supported. Yeah. But as long you, as you it, as long it, as mean, you drive the results, as long as you raise the big round, you can a lot people will turn a blind eye to a lot of bad behavior. And I don't think you get away with that kind of stuff up here. Yeah. I mean, you really have your finger on so many things and it's um it, it's incredible. I have a couple questions and I feel like I'm taking up too much time. I literally want you back on because there's so much to talk about. We have an I have a whole section in here we about like got there, yeah. you the yeah. person, how you spend your weekends. Uh, nobody you, wants to know that. Stuff. Nobody wants to know. Okay. Nah. I do. I mean self I'll ask you separately. I want to know about like your role as a board member and what about how do you deal with the pressure of like it sounds like your fund is made up of um, you know, some family funds and different different people, but I'm sure you've got some close friends in the fund. Do you ever Family, feel yeah. <laughs> pressure? Like, I don't I don't really want to have that be... Yeah. I, I would be terrible at that part because so, I'm a pleaser. I mean, part of the reason why I think I sell the way that I do, which is kind of an anti-sale, yeah. which is like, look, here's all the reasons why you should not do this. Yes. Um, and if you still want to do it, I'm, I'm willing to, like... Right. But I'm it, going but on the record to say. eyes open, right? Yes. And so I've tried to have that conversation, not just with with family, but with anyone who's in the fund. It's like I'm gonna I'm gonna do my this, this is my work. I love what I do. I don't know what else to do with myself. I'm gonna I'm gonna put everything I've got into this, mm -hmm. but it might not work. And you got to be okay with that. Yeah. And as long as they're okay with it, has it ever negatively impacted you where a friend or somebody acts weird because you lost them money? I mean, so far, knock on wood, we're we're doing yeah, pretty well. Like, there's not a lot of reasons for people to be mad be mad with us right yeah. now. Would not say that it like you know the 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 wheel of fortune turns and things could go 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 against us. Yeah, it's easier to have those conversations when the numbers are working. Yeah, well, it's also like your your job is not to help them manage their money. Like, if they're getting some money, like what you do with it. If you want to go back in, yeah. Well, and that's and the clarifying thing about venture in particular is so the fund lasts ten or twelve years, but you have to raise a new one every three or four. Yeah. And you don't get to raise another fund if you fit up, right? So the every time, like I, the the check for me is I go I gotta go I gotta be in market back in in 2020. I'm not raising right now, but I will be again next year. 
and you find out pretty quickly if anybody, you know, if you think if you think you walk on water, the world will tell you pretty quickly that no, actually you don't. Mm-hmm. And do you give your investors first right of refusal to get in on the next fund? For sure. Yeah. No, you you all like you're the people. Is that just standard? The people. Who, I mean, I don't know if it's standard, but it's just good common sense, right? Yeah. The people who helped you when when you needed help are the ones yeah. who get first bid. Yeah. Every time. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a moment you said 20 million or I think you said 20 or 25 million where you're like, hey, I'm oversubscribed. I'm done. So what if suddenly you got 50 million? Would yeah, you be okay so with that? It's interesting. And this is where I think the 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 capital markets, there are it's like a layer cake, right? There, there are tiers and there are specialists in each tier. So I talked about their series A firms. And then there's this new tier that sits below that, that C, that's the tier we occupy. In a second tier market, and people hate it when I say that Seattle's a second tier market, but it is. The, from a capital market standpoint, not from a quality standpoint or a team standpoint, doing anything other than the first tier and then competing with the money center markets at the at the Series A or above tiers, to me, just strategically doesn't make any sense, which is for the same reason that allocators prefer to give money to Sand Hill Road, founders prefer to raise their Series A from Sand Hill Road too. And what's what argument am I going to make that you really should take my money versus Sequoia's or Andreessen Horowitz's? Like, sorry. Not, yeah. not happening, right? Like yeah. they're really good at what they do. They're specialists in their tier and they're awesome at it. I can I can do do spectacular work at the tier at which I operate. But if I overraise the strategy and I start, because ultimately the size of your fund dictate, dictates your strategy, your check size and everything else. Mm-hmm. If you overraise the strategy, you start, which is the temptation always in money management. Is assets under think ma- so, yeah. Assets under management is how you get scored. Yeah, then you can like flex. Yeah, right. And, and your, fee, your fee income, like because all, yeah, all of it gets bigger. But you you completely kill the golden goose. But couldn't it just be that you said you do maybe six, seven deals? Couldn't you just be like, oh, I'll just do 10? So that's the difference is, is in uh, up for many years, because I had a partner early in the business and that, that partnership, we, we split up relatively early on. And then I really was kind of doing it by myself for a long time. I had a, I had a half-time partner and a venture mm-hmm. partner. Do you have an analyst and stuff? Nope. Nope. There's no. What? Yeah. So only in Fund Four. So there's a guy who was a who was a CEO in our first portfolio, Aviel Ginsberg. I've known mm, him, I've known yeah. him for a decade. Simply measured. Simply measured. Yeah. So so like great founder, dear friend, highly trusted advisor in in the business. He helped with selection through TechStars and early funds. When he when he sold Simply Measured, he joined as a venture partner. So he was mm. he was in the fund, but not like he had other stuff that he was responsible for. And then finally, for Fund Four, he be, he was able he was freed and was able to become my full partner. And he he wanted that, and I wanted that. So only really in this current fund do I actually have a two full time, fully committed partners in the fund for since basically since the beginning. That's awesome. And so now it's like, could we could we do more? Yeah, I think we could for sure. But. But not to the point that we screw up the strategy, which is yeah. first check, helping great teams get started, and then helping those teams get access to Tier 1 VC for Series A. Mm-hmm. If we ever lose sight of that's what our role in life is, then which you could do if you raise too much money. So is your, is your um, part of the attraction, is your relationships with Series A investors. Yeah, so that's So I mean, you've got those with the with Sand Hill Road and That's good. For, I mean, it's good for us and good for them, right? Which is oh, yeah. increasingly they believe this market has quality in it. Oh, for sure. They don't write seed stage checks cuz it's not a good use of their time or money, but to have someone who does write seed stage right. checks that they trust and think think is good at what they do, there's no competition. It's only yeah. like, "Hey, what have you what have you got?" So yeah. like I I talked to three different Valley Series A investors yesterday. And the same conversation is, what are you looking for? Yeah. What are you excited about? Here's something I've got that's not raising today, but probably will be in the next six months. Can I connect you? That's you, awesome. That's good for the founders. It's good for me. It's good for the good for the Series A first. And do you do anything outside of the fund personally that 
like a restaurant or, you know, just these kind of high risk, kind of fun extra things? No, I mean, again, like I've part of the promise to my LPs is any early stage investing I'm doing, you'll be a part of. Um, yeah, you're. We're like, there's no, there's we're no aligned. side deals. We're 100 percent aligned. Yeah, I I like that. Yeah, and um, what are you most excited about? I guess in 2020. I mean, I'm terrified, gonna of, terrified of 2020, to be of honest, the, 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 because of the election yeah. and and the markets feel super fragile to me. Um, what do I know? But so like, I I, I mean, I've been, I thought 2019 was going to be a rocky year and it turns out maybe the, maybe the Fed, like whatever, don't get me started on zero interest rate policy and, and political and, or like oligarch, oligarchic capture of the financial system. Like I, I think the United States is, is dangerously, dangerously at risk of, of trending toward like a Brazil or a Russia sort of oligarchic control of, of the economy. Um, so, but we're not going to, we're not going to go there. Right? <laughs> I'm um, like, my mouth is on, I'm like getting nervous. So I'm, I'm worried about 2020, but in terms of as an investor, like I think Seattle has never, cause all I do is Pacific Northwest, not just Seattle, but Seattle, Portland, Vancouver, Bellevue, Kirkland, whatever. We've never been even in a better, Bellevue and Kirkland. We've never been in a better position, <laughs> and partly, and this is like there's a whole other topic which we yeah. don't, we will never have time to get to. Well, we will because I'm going to make you come back. Which is cities, right? Which is what is how is a city a a an enabling or a disenabling environment for entrepreneurship? And one of the things that San Francisco has failed to do is, as a city, embrace growth in terms of like housing, growing the housing stock, or dealing with transportation. And so it's become more and more a place where only the very, very rich can survive. Mm-hmm. And that's toxic to young, ambitious people. Who uh, want, yeah. Right? Seattle's, I mean. So at gotta... the margin, Seattle, it's not perfect, but we've added thousands of housing units. We're building out a light rail system. We're investing in creating an amazing park on the waterfront. Like relative to San Francisco, we are making a livable city that's more just and more where there's more different kinds of people can be. And that's attractive to founders. Mm-hmm. So I actually think that we are a net importer of talent. And you probably see this as well. Lots of people who are fleeing the valley, who Seattle is a pretty good trade, which is oh, for sure. the weather's a little shittier, but there's a lot of great tech jobs. And it's a little more livable and a little more affordable. And it seems to care a little more about it. And people. a little more real. Yeah. So I, I actually think that the wind is so much at our back. Um, yeah. And it's, our, it's ours to lose. And other recent election results I'm a little disappointed in. Uh, in terms of having a city that works for everyone, yeah, because um, it, it feels like it's more of a class warfare mindset than it is about about uh, a, an adult conversation about how to bring everyone along, right? But I still feel like Seattle as a city, in the same way that it, that Manny and Matt can build a different kind of company here, I think we're building a different kind of city and a different kind of economy here, and I think it's the right way to do it. Yeah, well, I'm super grateful for you being on the podcast. I always ask as my last question. What fuels you, Chris Devore? <laughs> what fuels you? Um, you know, I, there's I'm such I'm so simple. Like I love my family, uh, and I love founders, and, and I love my city. And you you're doing it. I mean, you really have created quite the life where you're you're doing exactly what you're meant to be doing. Yeah, and it's I, super cool. And, and and it'll never again. It's like I because I decided I wanted to be do it my way. It'll never be big. It'll never be super. Like it won't. My name won't be in lights. But I get every day to do work that I care about with people that I think are awesome. Your name is in lights. You're like, mm. you're a celebrity. <laughs> We're in the midst. Very small scale celebrity. No, you're you're doing amazingly. It's incredibly impressive and inspiring. Um, so thank you. Super fun to be yeah. here. Thank you for you're the conversation. You're welcome. So fun. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review 
on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.